Welcome to a new episode of UCU Campus Chats. My name is Kim Zwitserloot. I'm one of the tutors and lecturers at UCU. I teach economics. And I'm here today with Alexis Aronowitz. Alexis, could you maybe shortly introduce yourself? Hi. Well, first of all, thank you very much for asking me to, uh, to be interviewed. Um, I'm an American. I've been living in the Netherlands for 20, about 28 years now. I have a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD in criminal justice. So I didn't have a broad liberal arts education. <laughs> um, I have been living, I've lived in the United States, Germany, the Netherlands, Israel, and Italy. Um, so I've lived in a couple of different countries, a couple of different cities. Um, I've worked for the Ministry of, I taught actually for seven years at a college uh, that contacted out with the US military. Um, I left there to come to the Netherlands and uh, work for the Ministry of Justice on a project and value added tax fraud. From there, I went to the University of Twente and did a research project on police priorities. Then I went to a uh, NGO and worked on uh, anti-discrimination issues. Then I left for the UN and went to Rome and then Turin to work for the United Nations Interregional Crime and Justice Research Institute. After that, I came back to the UN and, um, oh, I, I worked for, yeah, no, I worked for the Ministry of Justice again. <laughs> then I worked for the Police Research Program. And then I ended up at UCU and that's where I'm happy and that's where I settled. So okay. that's sort of in a nutshell, my, my, yeah. My, my career path. Yeah. Well, you already mentioned you had your bachelor, your master, and your PhD all in criminal justice. Um, and your bachelor, you got it at Loyola University in New Orleans, which is where you're from originally as well. That's true. Yes. And before I uh, did this interview, I actually asked our students and our alumni if there's something that they wanted me to ask you. Um, so I have a couple of questions from their side. And the first one is a question from Jin. You may remember him as yeah. well. And you would like to know if you would recommend living in New Orleans. Oh, wow. And for who would you recommend it? That's an interesting question. But can I taste, I would like to say something before I answer that okay. question. Yeah. I actually didn't plan to get my bachelor's degree in criminal justice. I had planned to get my bachelor's degree from the University of New Orleans in German. And okay. in the middle of my third year, I realized that this wasn't what I was enjoying studying. So I had to leave UNO because they didn't have a criminal justice program there. I switched to Loyola at that point and uh, had to do an extra semester in, at Loyola to finish my degree. Um, so I tell my students, you can't make too many mistakes in life. If you make a mistake and you study the wrong thing, change and study something else. Yeah. Now, let me answer Jim's question. Growing up in New Orleans was an absolutely amazing experience. The food is... <laughs> No other city in, in the United States. Uh, it's across a Cajun and Creole. Uh, it's the birthplace of jazz. The music is wonderful. The architecture is, 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 is beautiful. Uh, there's sort of a, 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 uh, a relaxed atmosphere in New Orleans. It's very, very different, I think, than you would find in other cities. But, and there's a capital B in front of that, but uh, it has a very, very high crime rate. New Orleans, uh, at the time that I was living there, and even after I left to study for my uh, master's degree, um, uh, had the dubious honor of being the number one murder capital of the United States. 
and it switched off maybe with other cities such as Detroit and then for one year and then it would go back up again. It still has, it, it, it's still a city with a lot of crime. Uh, there's a very, very depressed um, um, uh, school system there. Um, and of course, Katrina made it worse. Uh, if you like hot, humid weather, it's a wonderful place to live, but I did, I never liked it. So I was very happy to leave New Orleans. Um, yeah. It's certainly worth a visit. I think that it's a little bit difficult to live there. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, because um, you've lived there until the age of 21 to 22? 20, about 21, yeah. Okay. And what made you choose criminal justice? Is there anything in particular that caught your interest? Anything in your personal life that made you interested? I'll tell you how it started because it's a little bit of a weird story, but I think <laughs> those are the best our, stories. Our, our interest, yeah, exactly. Our, our, <laughs> our, our, there's, there's, something, there's something weird that triggers this interest. My uncle took me to go see the movie, The Boston Strangler, when okay. I was a teenager. Um, this is with Tony Curtis, and I was fascinated with the idea that a man would rape, would sexually assault, would rape elderly women and kill them. Fascinated in the sense of why would someone do this? What is the motivation behind yeah. doing this? And for some strange reason, my parents fostered this interest in violence and and bought me the book by Truman Capote called In Cold Blood. Great book. Yeah. A wonderful book. And this was sort of what started this this period interest in crime, in 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 inexplicable crimes, in violent crimes. And and um and then of course during high school I watched every single police show that you could possibly watch. Um, I fell in love with Germany. I studied German in high school, fell in love with Germany, decided I wanted to be a German teacher. So that's why I started studying German. And I did uh, a gap year between high school and college, lived in Germany as, a, uh, as an au pair, went to a German high school to an, a gymnasium. Mm -hmm. uh, and so of course, when I came back, I decided I wanted to study German. And then when I realized at some point in time, because I was taking German literature and translation, and decided this isn't what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I switched back to criminal justice and I never, ever looked back when I made that decision. Yeah. Um, I, I've, the interesting thing is this though, Kim, I've always been very, very interested in traveling in different cultures and different cultural practices in different foods. I mean, you, you noticed that I mentioned food when I talked about <laughs> yes. different foods, different religious practices, different, different, different holidays and how different individuals celebrate these holidays and, and and of course there was always maybe maybe there was this desire to study anthropology and I couldn't quite figure out what I was going to do with anthropology so I was fortunate enough after I got my master's degree and my PhD uh, not not after I got my PhD but of course before I got my PhD to combine this interest in different cultures and different cultural practices and, and different countries with the criminology. So I did my PhD on assimilation, acculturation and juvenile delinquency among second generation Turkish youths in West Berlin. Yeah. So it was the most amazing experience because I got to combine this love for Germany and the German language with this interest in criminology, with this other interest in different cultural yeah. aspects and different, different countries and practices. 
uh, into one PhD. And what did you find out there for your PhD? The most interesting thing that I, the most interesting thing that I found out was the following. Um, a lot, because the PhD, of course, was completed in 1988. I defended my dissertation, got my PhD in 1988, but of course the data was collected between 84 and 86. And you did a follow-up a couple of years ago, no? Did oh, that's no? what I'm going to be doing for my sabbatical. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. I remember you were going to come back to that subject. Yes, exactly. This is this, Because I interviewed the second generation yeah. Turkish youths. And one of the questions that I asked them was, where do you where do you see your future? Where would you like to go? And of course, many of these students said, many of these young boys said, I, I don't feel like I'm German. I mean, I was born here. I grew up here. I don't feel German. Um, I'm Turkish. I'm 100% Turkish, which is very interesting because a lot of the academic literature at that time said that when individuals migrate to different countries, they adapt to the the, the, the values of the country, they want to become Americans, they want to become Israelis, mm -hmm. they want to become Canadians, they want to become yep. Australians, traditional immigration countries. Yeah. But of course, the Turks never came to Germany uh, to immigrate and stay there permanently. They came yep. there as guest workers, yep. always with the intention of returning, which many of them didn't do. So their children were either born in Germany or they brought young children from Turkey into Germany. So these children grew up with a, a completely different orientation than many children growing up in families living in immigration countries. So whereas a lot of the academic literature at that time said that individuals born in these countries or brought there as young children identify with the host culture, this is not what I found. It was really strikingly different from the literature that I was using at that time. Um, these, a lot of these young boys said, I want to either return to Turkey or I want to migrate to another country, but I don't want to live here. So of course, my interest now is if I were to return to Germany and interview boys at the same age that these boys were when I interviewed them, I would be interviewing their sons, right? Yeah. So this is the third generation. And I'm interested now in seeing whether or not how these, this third generation sees their integration into Germany. Yeah. Um, whether their parents were living in Berlin at the time that I was doing this interview. Not that I think I will be interviewing the children of the, the boys that I interviewed, but if these boys were still, if they were living in the same uh, districts, mm -hmm. it's very, very possible that, that these boys are having the same experience that, that, you know, or the children of the boys that I would have interviewed yeah. or their neighbors or their uncles. Yeah. So uh, I would love to go back and replicate this study, which is the plan. Okay, and you only interviewed boys? Only boys, because number one, girls, Turkish girls never showed up in crime statistics, number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, at the time that I was doing this research, they were so shielded and so protected, it was almost impossible to get access to them. Yeah. There were no, these, a lot of the boys that I interviewed were at these, uh, what the Germans call Jugendfreizeitheimer. So these yeah. were clubs and Turkish girls just simply didn't hang out at these yeah. clubs. So there was absolutely no access to them. Okay. It's different now. So that, of course, would be very, very different. But, but because their numbers are non-existent in crime statistics, they just, they were of no interest yeah. at that point in time to my study. Yeah. And this was in West Berlin at the time, right? It was in West Berlin at the time. And you've lived there during your PhD, as well as when you were working for the U.S. Army. Is that correct? Exactly. Well, it was with Central Texas College, which contracted with the Army. Yeah, exactly. So I lived there from 19, let's see, 1984. I lived in Berlin until... 
No, 92. What was Westworld? I mean, you've actually were there when the wall came down. I saw the wall come down. And I I have to tell you, it was very, very strange because a friend of mine from New Orleans caught, there were problems and there were demonstrations and there were protests and there was a lot of unrest in East Germany, East Berlin at the time. Um, But there were never any predictions that the wall would fall. And I was working in the Southern part of the city but I was living in the city center at the time, in Lichtenberger Strasse, uh, which is right behind Kudam. And um, I came home that night. And the next morning, one of my friends from New Orleans called me, calls me and he says, congratulations. And I said, for what? I, it's not my birthday. He says, the Berlin Wall fell. And I said, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> I had to turn on the news to see it. And then, of course, it was amazing because you're seeing these little Trabants and Wartburgs, yeah. these little East German cars. Eastern European cars, yeah. Oh my God, they were all over Kurfürstendamm. It was just an amazing time. It was an amazing time. And one of the most interesting things is that I had a pen pal, mm-hmm. an East German pen pal that I had had, oh. I was 15 years old. Yeah. And I, we, I got her name from the newspaper. And um, I had visited her a number of times in East Germany, but of course it wasn't possible for her to leave. And uh, two or three days after the wall fell, the doorbell rings and she and her husband are standing at my door. Wow. It was just an amazing, amazing experience. What was West Berlin like both before and after the wall came down? Um, well, that, that was also an interesting time period uh, for me because I was living there under a status of forces agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, which allowed me to, it was a resident permit that I had uh, because of my connection as a civilian with the U.S. Army. Yeah. And with the status of forces agreement, I could go into East Berlin and shop and I would have to go through the Russian checkpoint rather than the East German checkpoint. Okay. So I had a little bit of a separate status. And, and um, what, what difference did that make, whether it was the East German or the Russian checkpoint? Well, the, the Russians couldn't control you. They couldn't go through your car. They couldn't, mm-hmm. they couldn't check your, 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 your purse or anything like yeah. that. So I actually illegally brought a snake back into Berlin, um, which I would never have been able to, which I bought at a pet store in East Berlin, which I would never have been able to do if I'd gone to the East German checkpoints. Okay. And, and what would you go to shop in East Germany? Well, okay. If, if you went through the regular channels in East, through the East German channels, you were forced to exchange 25 West German marks for 25 East German marks. Yeah. Wasn't a lot to buy. Okay. Yeah. Um, because everything, music was controlled, books were controlled. Yeah. But there were some of these stores that sold rather exclusive items, but they were expensive. And you, yeah. with the 25 East German marks, you couldn't do anything. But of course, if you could go through the checkpoint, through the Russian checkpoint and not get stopped or checked, then you would go into West German banks. You would exchange, for instance, 13 or 15 East West marks for 100 East marks. And then you could go into nice restaurants. You could go into stores and buy leather gloves, things like this that you could never afford to buy um, if you were exchanging it one to one. That being said, and of course, anyone that went over there with the U.S. Army, you know, was under the protection of the U.S. Army. So I was taking tours at that time. To, to, I had tour buses and I was taking tours at that time of, of, of Americans going over there. Um, I would always tell them, please do not buy things 
that um, that East Germans themselves will need, such as you know leather. What is it? Maybe these Theta decking. These these uh, what is it? These blankets. These feather blankets. Mm -hmm. Don't buy food. Yeah. Um, you know, don't buy items that, you know, kitchen items that pe things that people need. If you're going to buy anything, then go buy exclusive items that are extremely expensive that, you know, a, a regular East German would not yeah. be bought at the time. Okay. And because it must have been such a surreal bubble, West Berlin. It, it was. And, 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 you know, because, and in particular for me, I mean, you had everything in West Berlin clearly, but when I would go over to Brandenburg to visit these friends of mine, you would go into a bakery and there were three different types of breads. Or you would stand in line for an hour to buy uh, strawberries. And they are the kinds of, the, the quality of these strawberries are the kinds of, of, of strawberries that, the, you know, the Albert Heim would throw out because yeah. you wouldn't, they, they were past their, you know, expiration date. Yeah. So, you know, there were just limited numbers of, 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 of products that you could buy. The quality wasn't as good. You couldn't go into a cafe or a restaurant and have a conversation about politics because mm -hmm. you knew that somebody was listening. Yeah. So any kind of a conversation like that, you would have to do at home. Yeah. So you, you always felt, you felt a little bit uncomfortable. You always felt a little bit, yeah. uh, you know, a certain degree of unease when you were yeah. going there, at least I did. Yeah, I completely understand. And how did things change? after 1989? Uh, well, this was very, very interesting because once the wall fell, I have to tell you, I was down there with my brother who came up from uh, Kaiserslautern at the time and mm -hmm. he had Berlin friends with a pickaxe chipping away at the wall. Yeah. So we have, you know, little little mementos from the wall. Actually, we have pictures of us like standing on the wall. It was just an amazing wow. the time. Um, I think one of the most striking things was this. When you, when you lived in East Berlin, there was, there was, everything was so limited. Yeah. And people from the East would come into the West and it was just overwhelming for them. So I'm in Kadeve and there's a woman standing in the store. Which is the department store in West Berlin, right? right? Yeah. A big, big, big department store in Kofus and Dab. Yeah. Okay, Kadeve. And, and, um, and there's a woman standing there crying and I'll never forget this. And I, I walked up to her and asked her if she was okay, if I could help her. And she said, I just, I'm just overwhelmed. She says, when yeah. I need a white blouse in, in East Berlin, there's one or two or maybe three white blouses. Yeah. Now there are 50 of them and I don't know what to buy. Yeah. So it was just kind of, it was a very, very interesting experience. Um, it brought other things, other problems with it. It was wonderful that people had the freedom to move between East and West Berlin. Um, it brought crime with it. Yeah. Because, of course, people were coming from the East and stealing things. And there was a period of time right after the wall opened when police were informed that they were not to make arrests if the item that was stolen was under 25 marks. Wow. OK. Uh, so um, there were, you know, there were these types of incidences happening. Um, I think things at a certain point in time changed. The mood changed. And I think at a certain point in time, what you started to see was this rift between East Berliners and West Berliners, East Berliners having this feeling that we've been deprived for so long, now it's our turn. Yeah. And West Berliners resenting this attitude of yeah. East Berliners wanting to be privileged over them. So I, I think things at a certain period of time, I think got worse that there was sort of a strange mood in the city where you'd start hearing West Berliners saying, We'd like to have the wall back. Wow. 
that was very, very, very interesting. Let's see, I left in uh, 92 to go to Kaiserslautern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I lived in maybe 93, and then I came here permanently to Amsterdam in 94. Okay. And because, yeah, your research at that time was more about specific group and what crime was like within that specific second generation immigrants group. Right. But in the last couple of years, your research topic has predominantly been human trafficking. Exactly. How did that come about? And, and that was really almost accidental, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wrote one article. I got. I, got, I had one article in a, in a book chapter published on my on my dissertation, and I did a couple of conferences then. And for whatever reason, strangely enough, maybe sadly enough, even I, I walked away from that topic, and um, I was hired by the United Nations, uh, United Nations Interregional Crime Crime Interregional Crime and Justice Research Institute, UNICRI. Uh, they put me on a project on corruption. They pulled me off of that. They put me on a project of drugs, pulled me off of that. And then they put me on human trafficking. And it wasn't that I had a lot of say, and it wasn't that I asked for it, but I was just smitten with this topic. I love it. It was, I was maybe fortunate enough to get in to this topic and start doing research at the very, very uh, ground floor where the uh, United Nations uh, Convention on Transnational Organized Crime was introduced in 2000. It was launched for, you know, open for signature in 2000. I was there in Palermo when it was opened for signature, um, at, along with the two, with the, well, there were three protocols, one on trafficking, one on smuggling of migrants, and the other on smuggling of firearms. So there was just not a lot of research at that time. It was a fascinating mm-hmm. topic because it's not just the topic that has to do with crime, but it has to do with human rights. It has to do with, 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 with psychology and, and, and medicine and, 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 and the NGO world and, and, and the, you know, victimology and, and, and anthropology and sociology. So it's just, it, it's a, for me, it's a fascinating topic um, that hasn't gotten the recognition, for instance, the drug trafficking has. Yeah. So um, I've been very fortunate enough not just to be able to work with the UN on that project for the period of time that I was working with Unicree, mm-hmm. but um, UNODC hired me after that to work on a number of projects that they had launched with Unicree. Yeah. So I traveled to the Philippines for my first project. The second project was in West Africa. It was in Togo, Benin, and Nigeria. Yeah. Um, after that, I did a, just a short project with the UN on... Um, on uh, the Czech Republic. And then I started getting hired by other um, uh, international organizations, both nonprofit and profit. Yeah. Uh, to work uh, in Albania. And... and is there a specific research that stands out in your memory? Wow. Um, yes, yeah, I'm gonna say there is one and I'll tell you why, because this was totally mine. I had a sabbatical in 2013, Mm -hmm. and I was uh, actually intending to go home and spend some time with my mother, but uh, unfortunately, she passed away before my sabbatical. And then, of course, I had this sabbatical planned and didn't know what to do with it. So I was actually hoping to go to um, India. And why India? Because I saw this film that I absolutely fell in love with, and that was the best exotic marriage hotel. <laughs> and I decided I was going to go to India and research human trafficking. Only I talked to two Indians, and they both said to me, you cannot do this. There's too much involvement of organized crime involved in that, and it's not safe. 
And I, as an Indian, wouldn't go to India and do this. Therefore, I don't think this is a good thing for you to do. Yeah. So the next best thing was, what do I do with my time? I ended up contacting one of my former tutees from Nepal. Wow. This wonderful young woman. I had, a, I had a wonderful relationship with her while she was my tutee. When she left, she said to me, I live in a very beautiful country and I hope one day that you'll be able to come and visit my country. So I contacted Pritha Dahal and I said, Pritha, I would like to do my research in Nepal. And um, would you please put me in touch with somebody that would be willing to rent me a room because I'd like to go there for two months. And I think it would be very nice to be living with someone that could speak English rather than staying yeah. in a hotel. All of these guest houses are very cheap. And she wrote back a week later and said, my family would like you to stay with me. And oh. I have to tell you that was the most, I think that was the highlight of my life. That was the most amazing experience being together with this phenomenal Nepali family. And I think part of what made it so special is that I live at home with my husband and my cat. So it's a very, very quiet household here. And I moved into that household, which sometimes had 10 people living there. And yeah. there was always something wonderful going on. But a lot of the research that I've done, I've been hired by international organizations to do. So it is their research. They yeah. hired me as a consultant to do something yeah. on their project. But this was mine. It was all yeah. mine. I had ownership of this project. So I think the two projects that I have loved the most have been my PhD, mm -hmm. this project. And, and that project, I, um, I interviewed stakeholders. So yeah. police, predominantly NGOs and international government organizations. Yeah to ask them about the trafficking problem, what was being done to address the problem. And, um, and what did you find out? Can you explain a little bit more about human trafficking in Nepal? It's a serious problem in Nepal. Um, and it's it, it, the, the, the interesting thing is this, there was a, uh, an, a, a ministry appointed department that was dealing with this, but interestingly enough, it was embedded in the Ministry of Families um, and social welfare, which is not one of the most powerful ministries. And I say powerful in terms of budget. Yeah. So it didn't have the clout that it would have had, had it been embedded in the ministry of justice, for instance. Yes. Um, things, they don't have the budget there. So, so, so in countries that also had a problem uh, with human trafficking from that region. And I think you always have to look at regional patterns when you look at human trafficking. If you look, for instance, at Sri Lanka, it has a much better government infrastructure for fighting human trafficking than uh, Nepal does, but they have a, a budget that's probably six to eight times higher than Nepal has. Yeah. There was recognition of the problem. I think the situation's gotten better. Yeah. Um, a lot of the work that's being done is not being done by the government. It's being done by NGOs. And these yeah. NGOs are being funded, of course, by international donors. Mm -hmm. There are things that are being done, but what I found was that there's lack of consistency, right? Yeah. So in other words, and you see this, it's not, and this is not just a problem in Nepal, it's a problem that you see in, in, in any developing country. All of these projects are run by NGOs based upon funding by international donors. Yeah. And these international donors don't just say, we're going to give you money for the next 10 years, do whatever mm -hmm. you want. They fund a particular project. Yeah. So when that project ends, that's it. Then yep. the NGO has to fight for more funding for new projects. I find one of the, well, let's say one of the weaknesses with any of these projects is that there's very, very rarely any follow-up. Yeah. 
So we have projects, but we don't know whether or not these projects in the long term are really helping these victims of human trafficking. Yeah. I had a very, very interesting experience with the director of uh, IOM in Nepal, who I happened to work with for a very short term project when I was doing a, a project in IOM in Albania. Yeah. Years what, what is IOM? IOM, International Organization for Migration. Okay, yes. Um, and of course, I walked into this office. I'm looking at this name and I'm saying, hmm, the name looks very familiar. I walk into the office and we immediately recognized each other. So that was really wonderful. But he said to me, you know, Alexis, these projects don't always work because he said, even if a woman's been trafficked into prostitution, if she's been trafficked into prostitution, and many of these women are, we we save them right we 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 get them out of the situation we offer them services we try to rehabilitate them and then we give them training to be a pig farmer and even if we provide pigs for them because it's not just about the training you have to provide the tools yeah. so when they give them you know one or two pigs it still does not generate the kind of money that yeah. they saw being generated in prostitution yeah so the question is, do we allow them to go back into prostitution as freelance prostitutes or do we force them to continue being pig farmers? Yeah. So he says, I really question whether or not some of the services that we're providing to these women in the long term are going to keep them out of prostitution yeah. or whether that's a decision that we should be making. Yeah, they need a good alternative, of course. Exactly. And, you know, <clears throat> you do have to consider whether or not prostitution is illegal in a country but you know if we look at countries in which prostitution is legal do we then say it's immoral we make the decision that you cannot be a prostitute yeah. or do we try to empower these women these victims slash survivors of human trafficking do we encourage them to exercise agency but when they exercise this agency to want to return to prostitution yeah. do we then tell them oh no you can't do that so i think it's a very very complex problem that we're dealing with and and what's the biggest mix, misconception that people usually have about human trafficking wow that's a good question i think one of the biggest misconceptions is that human trafficking only happens in the area of forced prostitution mm -hmm. that it's not just about sexual exploitation that it's about uh forced labor i think that's one of the things that i was uh, so adamant about getting across in my course. And yeah. even one of the things that I do in my course is this, I hold up a picture of, 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 of my book, my book cover. Yeah. It's a picture of a child working in a brick quarry. Yeah. And I tell them when I was negotiating with the uh, publisher about the cover of the book, they wanted to put something on that had was related somehow to prostitution, right? Women approaching cars in, yeah. in, in, in sexy clothing. Yeah. And I said to them, you cannot put that picture on the cover of my book. This is exactly what the book is about. I'm trying to break this myth that trafficking is only yeah. about sexual exploitation. Yeah. And there's a reason why we use, why, why I wanted a picture of children on the book because any form of child labor, exploitative yeah. child labor is, is, is not acceptable. Okay. So one, one misconception is prostitution, forced prostitution. Mm -hmm. And the other one I think is this image that we have of the victim. These are poor, naive, ignorant women who are either kidnapped or completely deceived about what it is that they're going to be doing and they end up in prostitution. Um, I, when I was working for the UN in Nigeria, already 
in 2000, 2001, 2002, the government of Edo State, which is one of the states in Nigeria, it is a huge trafficking hub for women being sent into Europe and forced yeah. prostitution. Back in the early 2000s, there was so much awareness being raised of what was going on. So there is no way ever from that point on that any of those women were deceived about what they would be doing. Yeah. They knew that they were going to work in prostitution. Yeah. Now, I give students a continuum when I teach this course, and I say you can put human trafficking and the and the coercion and deception involved in human trafficking on this continuum. And then the far side to the left would be cases in which young women or, or men are kidnapped yeah. and forced into whatever, forced labor on farms, factories, fishing boats, or sexual exploitation. That Those cases are few and far between. And then the, if you, as you start moving along the continuum to the right, you've got cases in which individuals are completely deceived about what they would be doing because they told yeah. governesses, nannies, yeah. they'd be working in the food industry, yeah. um, in, 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 you know, uh, in hotels, in, in, in housekeeping, yeah. and they're forced into prostitution. Total deception. And then you start moving further along on the continuum and you've got individuals who, for instance, were told you can work in a strip joint, you know, or exotic dancing yeah. and make $1,500 a, yeah. a week. That's yeah. a lot of money. That's more than I yeah. make. Okay. And they say, this is great. And they know that there's, you know, they'll be dancing in yeah. limited clothing. Right. Yeah. And, and men might be stuffing dollar bills in their, in their G strings, but there'll be no sexual exploitation beyond that. They're not going to be yeah. forced to have sexual intercourse with the customers. Maybe they don't like, but they think fine. It's a job and I'll make a yeah. lot of money. And then you move further along all the way to the right. And you've got women who are recruited as prostitutes in their home countries. They're told you can make a lot more working as prostitution in the Netherlands. How about we do this? 60, 40, or 70, 30. I give you 30% of the funds. Yeah. And I get 60 or 70 for you know bringing you into the country, finding you an apartment, finding you customers. And then it becomes very, very, very murky, yeah. right? Because there's no deception about the type of work that's involved. Yeah. There, there's deception maybe about the conditions. And the interesting thing is this, police are starting to talk more and more about these sort of murky areas where they uncover women working with pimps. Okay, there are individuals taking yeah. some of their money, but it's very, very difficult to see whether or, or not it's human trafficking or how, how willingly these women entered into yeah. these agreements because you can't just decide if you're living in some small Czech village. I think I'll go to Amsterdam and work as a prostitute. Yeah. How are you going to get a window? You need an infrastructure for that. Yeah. Exactly. How are you going to get an apartment? How are you going to get customers? Yeah. Somebody has to help you do this, right? So this is sort of a, it's an employment fee that you pay to facilitate your journey and to get you set up in your job, right? Are you familiar with the work of UCU alumna? Uh, I think her name is Maite van Meulen. She works for the correspondent. No. And she's been in Nigeria, uh, living there and doing exactly this, talking to people on the ground about what's your story about the people who left here and went to Europe to work there, including the ones in human trafficking. And I think she had a whole series of articles about women who had worked as prostitutes and exotic dancers in Italy and then come back to Nigeria and who were also actively recruiting other Nigerian women to come and work there. I'll uh, send you the link afterwards because she's oh. working on exactly that about what's the story back home. Do people know? Do they not know? Or is this willingly or not? Or 
that's very, very interesting. Oh, they all willingly leave. Yeah. Everyone wants to leave. That's, that's never a problem. I think that the women know, particularly from Edo State, particularly at one city, Benin City, yeah. Edo State is just a huge trafficking hub. It's amazing. If you travel around that city, you'll see these mansions, absolute mansions. Yeah. This is built with money from these madams. This is built yeah. with money from the traffickers. And the interesting thing about Nigerian traffickers, and you do not read this when it comes to other nationalities, they incur these huge debts. You'll read um, $50,000, you'll read 50,000 yeah. euros, depending upon who's publishing. But this number pops up very, very frequently in the academic literature and in police files. But they know once they complete this debt, once they pay off this debt, then they themselves can stay there, work as freelance sex workers, and then recruit their own girls for traffic purposes. So there's sort of a light at the end of the tunnel where yeah. you don't see this, for instance, with Albanian victims of trafficking. Albanian women don't pay off their debts and then all of a sudden become traffickers themselves. So there's probably much, much more agency exercised by these women who think it's, 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 it's the debt that I have to pay yeah. in order to get to be where I want to be. Where I want to go. Wow. Okay. Exactly. I would, but let's put it this way. I would be very, very surprised if Micah found anything that contradicts what I'm telling you now. That no, it sounds very similar what I read from her. Yeah. I'll send them to you after. A, that, a, would be, that would be amazing. Thank you so much. I have two more alumni or three more alumni who ask questions, actually. Uh, one of them is from Florentine Ruel or Ruel. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. And she, first of all, would like to say that she really misses you and your classes. Um, and she's wondering if you could say something about the repercussions of the pandemic that we're in right now on human trafficking, both in the short run and in the long run. Has the pandemic affected it in any way? That's very, very interesting. Um, the pandemic, the, the, first of all, the data is very, very inaccurate in human trafficking. Yeah. And I will say that once, yeah. even, even when we, uh, even when we just, we, I mean, police clearly or NGOs or labor inspectorates uncover victims of human trafficking, they don't always admit that they are victims of human trafficking. Yeah. So numbers are tremendously unreliable. What do we see uh, in terms of projections? And UNODC, the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime, has already made projections, as has the Global Initiative on Transnational Organized Crime. They are projecting that we're going to see an increase in human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is the following. People are much, much more desperate than they were before yeah. the pandemic. It's put many, many more people at risk because they've lost their jobs. They've lost their livelihood. They've lost the ability to support their families. So whether or not it, it involves in more human trafficking, I think you're going to see an increase in human smuggling because people are just simply more desperate to earn money. And there's more money to be earned in developing countries, developing uh, countries than, excuse me, in developed countries, yeah. industrialized nations, yeah. Western countries than there is in their own countries. Yeah. So I think you're going to see more movement when it's possible. Yeah. And I think that you're going to see uh, as a, you know, a, a more exploitation occurring yeah. as a result of that. Definitely more smuggling, but probably more uh, trafficking as well too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the worsening economic conditions that unfortunately uh, makes sense. Oh, absolutely. The interesting thing is this, uh, a, a law enforcement agency during the first lockdown began reporting a decline in all kinds of crimes. And yeah. particularly in drug, drug sales because people couldn't be out on the streets in order yeah. to sell their drugs, right? So that dropped. 
Um, and uh, uh, household burglaries drop because burglars like to burglarize <laughs> when you're not at home. <laughs> people were home exactly. People were home yeah. now, right? So that dropped. Um, but but guess what? You know, domestic violence went up. Yeah. No. Yeah. Exactly, because people are now stuck in the same household, and you know maybe there are ten people stuck in a two-room apartment, you know, in 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 India, and 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 now there's you know there's no work and there's no income and there's no food, so so you know stress is going up. Um, so uh, there there have been those kinds of crimes that we have recorded and seen, you know, increases or drops in, but I think trafficking is something that that we're not accurate at recording at all. Yeah. Uh, but I think we will, we will, international organizations are projecting increases. An increase, okay. Yeah. Um, well, another question from Manuela van Vlasselaar, as well as Claire Quirio, would also both would like to send you warm wishes and hugs. Oh, this is so lovely. Thank you. Thank and, you, guys. Uh, you too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they would simply like to know if you're working on any new books or articles, and if so, when it will be available for them to read. Oh my goodness, yes, gracious, gracious. I made myself <laughs> promise I was going to take a moratorium on writing books and articles because I just finished I just finished two of them recently um, and I kind of actually enjoyed them. So I wrote a very interesting article. I, I, I like a lot of the stuff that I've written um, and it's all been very, very, very different. I mean, all of the recent things, of course, have been on human trafficking, but in completely different areas of human trafficking. So for instance, one was on um, are, are international instruments adequate in regulating uh, organ trafficking, okay? And I did that with one of my former students. And then uh, I, one of the ones that I just wrote was on uh, the victim offender overlap. So looking, for instance, at how in particular, uh, individuals are forced into criminal activities and whether or not governments recognize that they should be um, uh, recognized as victims. We have what we call the principle of non-punishment or principle of non-prosecution. My human trafficking students will recognize that. We've talked about it. <laughs> yeah. Meaning that, and this is in international instruments, if a victim under duress is forced to do something in contradiction to the law, they should not be held accountable for these crimes that they've been forced to, to, to perpetrate. And these range from pickpocketing to theft, to benefits fraud, to cultivation of marijuana, mm -hmm. uh, to drug smuggling, right? Um, and, but, but of course, there are also other areas of overlap. And that would be simply that, you know, individuals traffic women into countries, force them into prostitution, where prostitution is illegal in those countries, and then hold that over them, telling these women, if you try to run away or if you try to communicate with the police, we will give you up uh, as working in prostitution and, and, and you'll be deported. Yeah. So, you know, we shouldn't be arresting and prosecuting these women for working in prostitution mm -hmm. when they've been forced to do that. So that I loved working on that. That was very, very interesting. And that was for the Oxford Handbook of, I think, International Criminal yeah. Justice. And do I remember correctly that you've worked with the Amsterdam police as well? to inform them about this was a couple of years ago no no no, no. okay so my memory going completely wrong there no that's no that, that's fine no that's okay um i just let's see i just i finished revising a a, a book chapter on uh the link between or yeah the link between 
organized crime, transnational organized crime and human trafficking, which the mm -hmm. students in my new Law 35 class are going to have to read. Um, and I just finished a project for the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. And it was very, very interesting. They're, they're, they, they completed a project in Africa. What they're trying to do is rank countries on the seriousness of transnational organized crime and the country's resilience to crime. Yeah. And they completed this project for Africa, but it was just the African countries in general, okay? Yeah. And now they're doing thematic reviews. Yeah. And so I was contacted to look at this uh, situation involving only human trafficking, not organized crime in its totality in Europe. Yeah. Um, and that was very, very interesting because it forced me to, if somebody had already done, a, a number of people had already done sort of preliminary analysis and provided some information, I sat down and looked at that in conjunction with the country reports of the Council of Europe um, and the U.S. Department of State uh, Trafficking and Persons Report, the 2020 report, and uh, evaluated these countries. So yeah. it was kind of nice. I have to tell you, I felt very powerful in doing this, being the expert, <laughs> because I got to contradict what they were already doing. But the interesting thing is that they made you provide a justification. So you couldn't just draw things out of thin yeah. air, right? You have to really sit there and think about why would I give this country this score? Yeah. And I have to tell you, I did this right before the break started. I really, really enjoyed doing this. Um, and what is like, as you mentioned, like they were looking at like what makes a country resilient? against crime and so what what factors play a role in that these were the initiatives the countries took to fight organized mm -hmm. crime okay, in my case trafficking so looking at for instance whether a country has a national action plan looking at for instance whether or not uh, governments and ngos cooperate a yeah. big thing is looking at whether or not there's government corruption yeah okay Obviously, yeah. um looking at how many victims were identified whether they registered uh, uh confirmed or presumed victims how many victims were provided services, mm -hmm. um, whether there's a national referral mechanism. Yeah. So it really looks at whether or not governments have, um, yeah, measures in place to identify victims and then help them. Yeah. Um, and of course, a lot of that information is in the US Department of State TIP report. Yeah. So I just, I had a lot of fun just digging through the reports and, and, and you know, thinking about whether or not this country has a more serious problem than another country. And if you yeah. gave this country a six and it was listed as a tier one on the US Department of State's tier report, then if a country is listed as, as, as tier two, but you gave it a five, something's wrong there. So you have to- What does tier one and tier two mean? Uh, they, the, the US Department of State lists countries on tier one, tier two, tier two watch lists and tier three. Okay. Now, what this has to do is they really rate these countries on whether or not these countries meet the minimal standards for addressing human trafficking. Yeah. And these minimum standards are based upon the 3P approach that were found in the original U.S. Trafficking Victim Protection Act of 2000. Yeah. And this was uh, protection, prosecution, and prevention. Yeah. Okay. And in my class, we talk about four, the fourth P, that's uh, partnerships. And they systematically go through in this report, the US TIP report, for every single country that has what they call a significant trafficking yeah. problem. Um, is there, what kind of prevention measures are in place? So what kind of uh, uh, um, awareness raising campaigns do they yeah. run? Do they do 
um, um, proactive labor inspections, okay? Yeah. Things like this. And then they'll look at uh, prosecution. How many prosecutions? Do they have they specially trained judges and prosecutors? Are the number of prosecutions going up or down? And what kind of sentences are these individuals yeah. given? And if they're dismissed, why? Okay. Yeah. And has corruption been linked with the judicial services, et cetera, yeah. et cetera? And then they move on to what was my third? Uh, uh, victim protection. Yeah. How many uh, shelters have they built? Do they have special shelters for children or for men? Um, you can't house children in the same shelter yeah. that you house adults. They need they have special care needs. And um, you know, do they have uh, a, a, a reflection period, or do we just take victims and then you know? Yeah. immediately repatriate yeah. them to their own countries. So they look at all these measures and then they rank these countries. If, yeah. if, if they think that you're living up to our standards based, the US government says, if you're living up to our standards, you get placed in tier one, tier two means you need to do yeah. a little bit of work and watch list means if you don't do something, you're gonna slip down to tier three. Yeah. And of course the tier three countries are all of the United States political, what is it, uh, political enemies such as Russia, Cuba, Sudan, um, I will say this, and I do tell this to my students, the U.S. government has been accused of using this as a political tool. Yeah. So take it for what it's worth. It is one of the best, or let's say the only report that comes out annually yeah. on looking at government uh, responses, which I think yeah. is important because we know how unreliable the numbers are. I mean, just yeah. say if you have, you know, a thousand victims in the U in the Netherlands, and we had, you know, 700 last time and, you know, 1200 the year before, does that mean that we're uncovering more victims or, you know, or fewer victims or yeah. is, is, is trafficking really going down? And if you uncover one case with 70 or 80 or 100 victims in forced labor, this will skew your statistics yeah. for the next year or two. So Absolutely. I think these are things that we have to be careful. I, I don't put yeah. a lot of stock in the statistics. Well, you always I, need to think about where do the data come from, who compiled them, what are their interests? Exactly. That's constantly what you need to be aware of when interpreting data. Right. Um, we're already at the final question. Okay. Uh, and that's a personal one. The topic that you're studying is quite depressing, I would say. It's not and uplift. You don't see the best of humanity, to say the least. Right. How do you keep your spirits up? Well, I think, first of all, I'm a very, that's a nice question. I think I'm a very optimistic person to begin with. Um, and of course, you have to remember, I'm not dealing with victims. I, When I went to Nepal, I made a specific choice not to interview victims because, number one, I'm not a trained psychologist and I don't want to do any more damage to these victims that's already been done. I don't want to sort of yeah. rekindle old, you know, reopen yeah. old wounds or rekindle trauma. So I don't do that. Um, the one time that I that we uh, with the UN uh, worked with a victim that we met with the family of these two young boys that were trafficked as children. I found that extremely disturbing and I, I could never do that. I yeah. have tremendous respect for people that work with victims. I will tell you that there are people that work with victims that are seeing psychologists to work through some of the trauma that they've had to listen to. So of course you have to remember a lot of what I'm dealing with is, is, is sort of very academic. Yeah. I think that that's, you know, how I don't, but I have you removed someone. Yes. But I have had meltdowns in class where I have started crying because something upsets me. And I think that I, I think I, I, and I think it's always a little bit shocking to the students to, you know, to see that, but I cannot talk about child sexual abuse without getting very, very upset about it. Yeah. And sometimes specific cases that I'm talking about really, really, really upset me. But I think that that's normal. I think 
I think if you work in a field like this and you're, you know, you're, you're reading these stories or, you know, watching interviews with victims or whatever you're talking about, it's, it's extreme. It is extremely disturbing. Yeah. Um, but I think, that, you know, as long as you sort of step back and you do really only these academic analysis, um, um, it, 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 it's much, it's much easier to sort of separate yourself yeah. from the trauma. Yeah. And then you have to find a balance indeed between not becoming, how do you say that? Um, non-feeling about it, not becoming immune, while at the same time having enough distance to still being able to continue your work? I, you know, I, I studied, when I did my undergraduate degree at Loyola, I was in a program with um, police officers because this was at the time that the, the federal government was giving money to police departments to provide an education to, to, to uh, police officers. So they were all, all, all of my colleagues at school were on these LEAP grants, these law enforcement education program grants. I can remember talking to these guys in my class and saying, How do you, in New Orleans, people were being shot yeah. all the time. And, and there was not a single student in my class that had not been to a homicide scene. I said, how do you deal with this? And they say, you have to learn how to turn off your emotions or else you can't function yeah. at your job. And they all said to me independently, one another, the only thing that really upsets us is uh, anything involving a child, you know, where a yeah. child is severely injured or killed. Yeah or, you know, really extreme violence, yeah. you know, or with elderly, but, but, you know, for the rest, it just, it, for them, it sort of becomes routine. Yeah, that's the horrible part of it. But I have also- But at the same time, you need it indeed to keep going, so. Uh, yeah, but, but I've always said in my next life, I'm gonna do something else. I've loved, I wouldn't, I don't think I would change anything in this life, right? <laughs> I've loved everything that I've done. And, and it's, you know, it's been quite a ride. It's been a wonderful career path. Um, but I think maybe in my next life, I'm going to do something that doesn't have to do with crime and violence. I haven't figured it out yet, but I think it's going to do something completely different. Well, that's a lovely way to end our conversation. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much, Kim. And I've enjoyed talking with you and, 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 and with the students that are going to listen. Um, and uh, thanks very, very much for this opportunity. Yeah. So for the students and the alumni that are listening, do let Alexis know if you've listened to it and what you thought of it. Uh, that's always appreciated. Um, but Alexis, for now, have a lovely day and I hope to see you soon. Well, thank you so much. And I would just like to leave all of my students with one last message. And I know it's this COVID has been extremely difficult for all of us. Keep your spirits up. It's a matter of time, but we'll all be back in the classroom in the hopefully near, but in the future. Stay strong. <laughs>